Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Jonathan Aberman, thanks for joining us. Happy holidays. It's hard to believe we've reached the end of 2017, heading to 2018. I can't think of about a better guest to join us to talk about some of these big topics than my friend Mark Walsh is here with us in studio. Mark was the head of the Office of Innovation and Investment at the Small Business Administration during the Obama administration. He's been an angel investor here for years through Ruxton Ventures, and literally he was one of the fathers of the modern internet. Some of the things we are going to talk about, we're going to talk about his time at the Small Business Administration, what he learned, what it was like to be involved in the early days of the Internet, what we're going to be able to think about as it relates to today. And, you know, there's some big technology waves that he's involved in, invested in, including education and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Over the last few years, you spent time working the federal government around innovation, and you got a real ringside seat into how government could be a force of positive change. And you had some real interesting learnings about investment and venture capital around the country. Share with us some of the things that struck you from your time working in uh, the Obama administration. Right. So the last year or so last 14 months of the Obama administration, I was I was pleased to be the uh, head of the Office of Investment and Innovation at the Small Business Administration. And I got to tell you, it's one of those sort of hidden jobs in government that very few people know about, but has a, a, a really deep impact. I, I told people it was the greatest job in government because I had a, a big budget, $6.5 of your t- and my tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to invest in professionally managed funds, sort of a fund-to-fund structure for direct cash investments for startups uh, that needed that cash, non-dilutive cash investment, and then spend a lot of time in the incubator and accelerator space. So as a government funder, in partnership with privately managed professional funds and privately managed growth companies and privately managed accelerators and incubators, I saw that collision between the public and the private in the partnership that we all want, that 3P, public-private partnership. And one of the things that my colleagues and I did a pretty good job at, I must admit, in my stint, was get those public dollars with private partnerships into other geographies, other demographies, other genders, and other industry-centric arenas that most c- compared to where most venture capital goes. And here's a quick data point we used to quote. About 66% of all venture capital comes from and goes to 25 zip codes. And it's the same 25 we can all predict. It's the Valley, it's New York, it's Boston. So a lot of what our, our goal at the SBA's uh, arena was, was to to get those dollars motivated to be in places with people that normally wouldn't get them. And the final point is that you're seeing now some real vitality of that, of that effort in the private sector. And our mutual buddy, Steve Case, through his Rise of the Rest tour, and just as a sidebar, I went on, on his bus and did a couple of stops in the Rise of the Rest tour as an SBA person. Uh, to support the overall goal of the Rise of the Rest Tour, which we can touch on in a second. But this idea of getting uh, venture capital or angel angel capital, and particularly high net worth or ultra high net worth angel capital, into places and into people's pockets that are not normally uh, uh, seen on this, you know, near the campus of Stanford, seems to really be taking hold. And I just find it very, very encouraging. And I think it's great for the overall nation. I think it's also great for the innovative economy. Well, some have argued that the reason why money pools in the places it pools is because you need to have talent that is capable of growing technology companies. You know, people who know how to build product, people who know how to service customers, build traffic, uh, and so forth. So 
I've always felt that the pooling of capital was a reflection of that. But are you saying something different that with the way that the world's working, with the Internet crushing sort of distance between people, that talent just exists everywhere? So yes and no. I think there's no question that talent for particularly tech, uh, for product, for service, for code, uh, for new platforms, it's always going to migrate to the places where it is. I mean, my joke, I think you may have heard me say this, is that if you were in in Italy in the, you know, 1470, and you were an artist and you lived in Parma, you didn't stay in Parma very long. You went to Florence where the Medicis were, you know, you went to the centers where uh, art was celebrated and there was money to back you from the, from the Medici family. Same is true here. I mean, if you're, if you're doing a new app and you want to, you want to get a hot, you want to be a unicorn, you're going to end up at, you know, Phil's coffee shop in, in, in Palo Alto. Mm. But if you look at other sectors like ag tech, agriculture tech, or fintech, or even blockchain in some of those arenas, or areas where 3D printing and metal bending, some of those arenas are going to be in towns like Lexington, Kentucky, which is a big ag tech center. Why? It's Kentucky. I mean, they grow things in Kentucky. They're not growing things in Palo Alto. It fills coffee, right? So the idea of, of industry centrism and knowledge base for people that now have a pretty cheap platform called the net to build products, to compare notes, to, uh, to, to find some sort of some crowdfunding or crowd, I should say crowdsourcing of knowledge base, but be in a physical place where they know that arena like ag tech in Nebraska or in Kentucky, places like that. I think you're starting to see that. So just to return to the rise of the rest thing with Steve, he, he's actually finding that he's going to cities that have that deep domain expertise for a particular type of, of technology or uh, or product or service. And he's seeing some real vitality there. And we all are. So that would be my pushback, which is, of course, Palo Alto, you know, Route 128 in Boston, Silicon Alley in New York. They'll get the money and they'll get the they'll look at the next tech unicorn. But if you're looking at bending metal in a 3D metal shop to make a device that can help. Uh, folks with disabilities get out of their wheelchair better. That can happen in, uh, you know, in, in Minot, South Dakota. We're here with Mark Walsh, experienced entrepreneur, a longtime part of the D.C. tech community, a former policymaker. Mark, that's interesting to me. What does that mean more parochially to D.C. if we've got one of the leading names in innovation and investment in the region looking outside the region rather than doing a, a fun focus on D.C.? Well, look, you're, I mean, here I'm looking at a guy, you, Jonathan, who uh, has has really committed his DNA to the collision of technology and the government budgets that matter, both, both, both domestically, internationally, federal, state, and local. So I think that collision is going to continue to be one of the most interesting places for innovation and investment. Why? Because the federal government is a $4 trillion enterprise <laughs> that's buying a lot of new stuff all the time and having to integrate that new stuff to serve us as customers and citizens. And you know as well as anybody that innovation is the is the absolute mother's milk of having citizens being serviced better and better and better by the national government. Now, we can waste some time on this administration, and I'm not going to do that because this is not a political show. It's about what's working. But I think that if you look back over the last 10 years and hopefully over the next 10 to 20, that you'll see more and more investment, venture-like, private equity-like, in this district for in this arena, in the middle Atlantic area, particularly around D.C., from sort of Richmond to Wilmington, Richmond to Philly, for companies and efforts that are not just subprime, you know, working with with uh, with um, uh, some, you know, Boeing, but but small companies that make a difference in how government services citizens. I think it's a totally vibrant economy right now here. Mark, you had a ringside seat in basically the the creation of the internet, the consumer internet, business internet. When we come back after the break, I'd like to turn our attention to a little bit of the historical perspective 
and what you see now. Are we at the cusp of a brand new wave and what does it look like? So we're going to have that conversation, continue that conversation with my friend Mark Walsh, co-founder of Fact Squared, managing director of Ruxton Ventures, and we'll be right back. What's working in Washington? Happy holidays, folks. I'm joined the studio today with my friend Mark Walsh, co-founder of Fact Squared, managing director of Ruxton Ventures. Before the break, I pointed out that Mark was very much part of the team that commercialized the Internet. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and his perspective on where we are right now in society, a result of the Frankenstein monster that you birthed on us, Mark. Thank you. But anyway. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, Mark, you you were uh, very much in the hands of this. Uh, give us a, a quick history of your, your career around uh, creating the Internet. I think it's interesting for people to get Thank that. You. So in 1986, I got into what is now the Internet. Uh, I joined a company that really offered text-based versions of everything we now take for granted. Uh e-commerce for shopping for consumer products. We had a travel, text-based travel service, of booking travel at the lowest possible price on all the airlines. We had a car buying service to shop and find a car at the lowest price from a dealer near you or a, or a hidden a hidden vendor. We had a, um, a hospitality service for finding the restaurants and the hotels. So all the things we take for granted now on searching and doing transactions in cyberspace, the company I was with and the, the area that I ran, we're doing it in text, 40 character, 80 character. Um, and we were partners with people like Prodigy and CompuServe. These are the names from the deep, deep mists of the early, whoosh, you know, the old dial-up log-on no noise that we recall, or some of us recall, uh, some with horror. But then in the <laughs> early 90s, it started to kick in. And as you mentioned, I, I was uh, CEO of Genie, which was GE's competitor to AOL. Then I was at AOL as a corporate officer. And AOL totally drove the train. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of discs and CDs mailed to American citizens to drive adoption. So around 98, 99, AOL, you know, had five, seven, nine million members. And that's when a service starts to t take complete hold. When you have an audience that big, the technology, device, content, connectivity, they all started to really spend a lot of money to build it up. So what we now, again, take for granted in our mobile phones, uh, in our content, in our devices, in our laptops, in Wi-Fi versus being plugged in, uh, dial-up during disappearing. So, so Wi-Fi is a sort of a universal access and a universal right these are these are visions that were just wet dreams, frankly, in, in 1986 <laughs> and even 96, and to some extent 2006. I mean, you don't have to go that back that far to think that you know the internet or, or access to things on the internet was still kind of new, and there was not a lot of legislation around it. So, you know, in some ways, I'm both proud of the of the 30 year effort, 31 year effort of what I've been part of, and there are parts of it that make me very very sad and afraid because a lot of what we didn't expect to happen has happened. A lot of bad actors have come into this internet arena. A lot of sources of information that are really not in the in the overall goal of a, of a healthy and sustainable earth. Uh, bluntly, as citizens have shown up, uh, I think a lot of very greedy people have made a lot of money and haven't really helped push the technology ahead. And I'll tell you one, finish with one, one quick story. In 1994, I met with Mitch Kapor, you know, the legendary Mitch Kapor. And he was talking about the future of the internet, and I was at 95. I was with AOL, and we were going to do all this commerce stuff with him. And, 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 he, and he was talking about how surfing the internet was so incredibly satisfying. 
And I said, you know, Mitch, I bet you're the kind of person where the journey is its own reward. And he said, yes. I said, I'm all about destinations and transactions. And he said, we worship at different churches, you and I. And I thought about that over the years I have, and it's sort of a religious way of looking at connectivity. Um, he's about the journey. He's about discovery. He's about community. I now completely get his point. At the time at AOL, we were rewarded, we were re rewarded with community, connectivity, and commerce. So I hope there's a return in some ways, not to the shining city on the hill, but a return to the sense of community that the internet really was all about to begin with, and a, a, a maybe a departure from some of the really dark forces that have taken over a lot of what the internet experience is. We're here with Mark Walsh, ex experienced founder of various technology businesses, and we're having our a good time here in the studio and our What's Working Washington holiday edition. Well, Mark, you know, the, the internet really grew up, it, it started out as a well-meaning enterprise. It became a commercial enterprise. You know, you read the stories and you look at how Facebook basically affected the election, probably decided the last election, in a lot of people's opinions. How do you claw it back? I mean, how do you take a free market activity and how do you regulate speech? I'm I'm not sure that we can do anything now that the genie's out of the bottle. Well, I disagree, although I think it'll be it'll be tricky to get it right. But Facebook is a media company. And we don't think of them as a media company. I, I say we sort of generally, may perhaps you do, but I think mm, I many don't. don't. Mm. And media companies are regulated by the FCC. They are regulated in ways where they are punished if they tells tells if they say something that is untrue. Um, they have to prove that they provide uh, opportunity for differing voices. Now, it's not like you know Channel Five in West Virginia, where I used to work. You know, it's a CBS affiliate where it's an iterative sense of programming. There's one channel, and you watch shows iteratively. Now media has broadened, so I can watch any show I want at any time. But I think Facebook is going to have to start to comply with all of the advertising regulations for politics that broadcast does. So when you watch a when you watch an ad for Ralph Northam, our new governor of Virginia, fabulous campaign, and you know, when he ran a TV ad, he had to say, I'm Ralph Northam and I endorse this message. It's like under, you know, Dodd Frank or not uh, uh, McCain Feingold, the CEO has to sign the financial reports, right? So this is called accountability. And I think that hopefully you'll start to see accountability on advertising that Facebook is able to show you because advertising with no accountability is coming out of, you know, Vladivostok and it, you know, caused a guy to walk into a pizza parlor here in Washington, D.C., shoot off a gun because he thought that's where Hillary Clinton was having a slave sex ring with underage children. Right. And that's one. How example. the hell did that guy think that? Because he read was, Facebook. Well, but not just ads, Mark. There was a lot of uh, there were a lot of posts that were written by people, but also bots and it's not just there. We saw it in subreddit, uh, the Trump subreddit. We see it at 4chan and, and various other places. This whole phenomenon of clickbaiting, writing stuff that's not true. I mean, at some point, don't we have to have veracity in the, in the hands of the author? Yeah. No, I think there will never be veracity in the, in the hands of the author. So the problem with the Internet is that, it, that everyone's an author. So, so, but there are some efforts. I've actually, I'm thinking of investing in one, actually, of a kind of a truth machine where there will be the new version of Walter Cronkite. And it's kind of Snopes.com on steroids. It's some way to, uh, it's the four Pinocchios of the Washington Post. Now, the problem is that this president has coined the term fake news in a way that is really, uh, in my personal opinion, polluted the conversation. It's going to be tough to put that genie back in the bottle. But I do think that there will be some versions of veracity meters that will be standalone, that will be publicly funded or the not-for-profit, and they'll start to gain some traction, much like, it's a weird analogy, but in the early days of the Internet or the early days of interactive services, as we used to call it, there were 10 different services, AOL being one of them. 
There used to be 50 car companies in America. There used to be 500 telephone companies in America. Now, industries consolidate, and I believe the veracity industry will consolidate around a few players that are known to be dependable, that are known to not have an agenda. Now, I'm not talking to the ProPublicas of the world, although they're an interesting play, but there will be some winners. There will be a consolidation of veracity, and that's a business that, that will be not for money, but it will be for the better world. We're here with Mark Walsh, serial entrepreneur, co-founder of Fact Square, managing director of Ruxton Ventures. This is a What's Working in Washington holiday special since it is coming to the end of 2017 and 2018. After the break, we're going to turn our attention to what we think 2018 will bring in the way of opportunities for entrepreneurs and innovators around the country and D.C. region. So we'll be right back. What's working in Washington? Happy holidays, folks. I'm Jonathan Aberman, and I'm here with my friend Mark Walsh, co-founder of Fact Squared, managing director of Ruxton Ventures. Before the break, I teased out it's going to be 2018 before we know it. Mark, what are we thinking 2018? What are you looking to invest in? Where do you think the big trends are? Wow. No pressure there. I have the, Everyone's not got the... their checkbook out and waiting yeah. for you to tell them what to do. Well, let's start with the wackiest part of this uh, of this world, which is uh, blockchain, but not even blockchain, cryptocurrency, or famously known by its by its leading brand, Bitcoin. Now, I know you have an opinion on it. You've written about it, and congratulations. Um, I just invested in a cryptocurrency fund, and what these guys are doing is they're investing in the top ten currencies. There's about three hundred currencies, believe it or not. Uh, but the top 10 currencies, Illyrium, uh, Bitcoin, and a few others, represent about 85 to 90 percent of the of the value out, out there because, you know, the currency have, has value like like paper dollars. Right. Um, so I've invested in a fund that manages to it, it manages the fund to be perfectly aligned with the with the market cap of the top 10 currencies. But they juice their return. There's a whole subtext coming up of people that are borrowing bitcoins to play for two to three days on the hedge. So these guys have a bunch of Bitcoins and they actually lend them out to hedge players who are playing the margin on the hedge of owning a Bitcoin. It's kind of like kind of like a shorting stock without owning it, right? Sure. So they juice the returns by 40 or 50%. I hope they juice the return by 40% per annum with that little, that little thing. Now, look, I put the money in about four weeks ago. I'm already up 47%, okay, one month. I'll probably be down 90% next month. So this is a high beta arena. But I do believe, and I think you may agree with me, I do believe that cryptocurrencies are not only not going away, I don't think they're a bubble. I think there are brands inside it that are, that are a bubble, just like there were brands inside the Internet in 2000 that were, that were part of the bubble. When the bubble popped, all brands got, got punished. A few survived, and we now know them as Amazon and Facebook and Apple and Netflix and, and, uh, and Google. But I think there's going to be a – that the currency of cryptocurrency will continue to be a viable place for people to extract – trade and track value and that's where blockchain of course is the kick up so that's number one you, you want to validate me or you want to argue back i'm not going to argue back what i'm going to say is but you for, look very very well cynical that's my well you job. and i have been doing radio yeah. together for 100 years and you know if i don't look like that i'm clearly not in the moment but but where's the joy where's the funny where's, where's the, the smile you where's know, the you know the come smile? on where's the supportive comment uh that's next week's show okay but anyway look the issue that you describe with currency 
you know, I used to trade currencies and back in the in the uh, 80s and the trade, 1880s. Yeah, no, 1980s. Thanks for that, though. Yeah. But trading currencies is not new. What's new about quote cryptocurrencies is the underlying database, the the idea of uh, a distributed database, which is what blockchain is, underlying financial transactions is truly revolutionary. Yep. And the financial markets are rapidly embracing this technology. And what it does is it allows, for the first time in history, a unit of exchange, a unit of trading to be completely created without the intervention of a government. And right. that's why cryptocurrencies are important. And by the way, it's why I think as Americans, we should be really concerned about fiscal imprudence and large tax cuts with no particular economic benefit. Because if the world loses confidence in the dollar, yeah. when your your Bitcoin's up 47% because you're spending dollars to buy it. That's right. Uh, I'm highly concerned about what happens in this country if the dollar disintegrates in value. It'll, inflation will be higher, interest rates will be higher, and I don't think our friends downtown have any idea what kind of fire they're playing with. So that's my concern about Bitcoin. I completely agree, and I also think our friends downtown have no idea what they're playing with with the government uh, being shut down and particularly the debt ceiling. I mean, mm. you may recall back in the day when the last huge debt ceiling fight, I actually was on the Larry Kudlow show, you remember on CNBC, and I famously, at least at the time I thought it was famous, I said, you know, we're, we're a deadbeat nation. And Larry uh, Kudlow and CNBC rode that for a while because it was a term that kind of shocked a lot of people. I'm not saying that I had an impact, but we are potentially a deadbeat nation. Because to your point, if the world loses faith in the full credit of the United States of America to back that piece of green paper we call a buck, we have a serious, serious problem that can cascade into a wide variety of areas. So that's a really dark I, – I don't. let's not go dark for the future, sure. but I think you're spot on. So well, let's talk about some of the biggest issue. What else do you like for 2018? Education. So I, I know this is uh, – as a buddy of mine used to say about the Internet back in 1991, he used to say the Internet's the business of the future and always will be, right? And that was a joke about education, education software, education software and services, online learning, and you know, all the cool stuff. People said, hey, that's the business of the future and always will be because it kept promising to be – the new way we would all learn from Khan Academy many years ago to, uh, to you know, you to me and uh, edX and all these plays to make sure that, hey, colleges will disappear someday. We'll all just go to college online and we'll all get master's degrees magically over over a weekend. Well, <clears throat> the promises were often filled with hot air, but I think the actual execution is starting to kick in. So what you're starting to see now are a few companies I'm not. I'm an investor in some of them. Sadly, I wish. In, I wish in all of them. I probably should start a fund and do this. A few companies are actually building tool sets that colleges agree to use to make themselves more cyber centric. Because the biggest gap between execution and and adoption was that the colleges and universities were like, no, 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 no. You can't learn outside of my arena. Mm. Now, whether they admit it or not, was one issue. But at the end of the day, and I say this lovingly, the inmates run the asylum and in, in, the, in the higher education world. The faculty really runs what's going on. And most faculty who've, who've lab labored for years and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their PhD so they could teach in a class on a campus at a university are not the people that are going to adopt a new way to shred that whole model. Yeah. So finally, I think they're seeing a tool set where these professors – are saying, wait a minute, I can use this and I can be better at my basic job and I can extend how good I am at my basic job to people in places and times that I'm able to, uh, to, to, to extend beyond the actual room I'm in. So I think there's some real traction there. It's funny, I thought you were going to mention that we have technologies now to really help assess skills and, and do better skill development and that the whole educational model was actually possibly going to get changed. I look at companies like EverFi, for example, or Cybrary here in town are doing new things. But you didn't go there. I didn't go there, and and I didn't go there because 
I was waiting for you to prompt me to go. I do what I can for you, Mark. Uh, Because I think you're spot on. And I think this is another thing, by the way, that does let the inmates that are on the asylum become very uncomfortable, which is the admission that a significant portion of the United States, and I would argue the world, doesn't necessarily need a college degree. And this college degree has been this vaunted badge of honor, this epaulette on our uniform, or a master's degree, MBA, whatever, that, that we need the epaulette and the uniform to show that we have critical thinking skills. And we've spent years on a campus or at a, at a validated brand like, you know, Rutgers or Princeton or University of California, Davis or whatever. I don't care. And we have this epaulette and a uniform. And so I think what um, folks like our, our buddy Tom at, at Everfi is doing a fabulous job, but a wide variety of other companies are showing that if you can validate a skill set that manages against the career you care about, from auto mechanic to refrigerator repairman to stock analyst to whatever, if you can if you can validate a series of skill sets that the industry you want to join has said that's key for you to be successful in this industry, if you can do that without getting the epaulette in your uniform, Mazel tov. And I think there are a bunch of companies that are chasing that, and I hope they're all successful because, I mean, I'm biting the hand that fed me. I was chairman of the board of trustees of my alma mater. I love my alma mater. I was very involved in the University of Maryland, as are you, a wonderful state, you know, R1 university based here in, in College Park. But at the same time, I think their specific physical model of campus of, of education, of tuition, of attendance, is going to come under great duress. I think that's right. And your point about professors needing to change the way they teach. I, I teach online and in, in classroom now, and it, it's a very different experience, and, and you have to adapt. Mark, as always, it's great to see you and spend time with you. I, I hope you have and, and had a happy holiday. Thanks for taking the time to share your experience with us during this time of reflection and opportunity. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad to you, too. Happy holidays, everybody. We'll see you again in the new year. I was Mark Walsh, co-founder of Fact Squared and managed director of Ruxton Ventures. I'm Jonathan Aberman. See you next time. Thanks for listening to What's Working in Washington. A special thanks to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. How do you get to be number one in the D.C. area? Eagle Bank did it by putting relationships first. They're flexible, involved, responsive, strong, and trusted. Eagle Bank's goal is your success. You know, What's Working in Washington's been on the air for a little bit over a year. We started in December of 2016, and we see continually how many people are devoting their lives to making things better, mission entrepreneurship, mission-based, cause-based activity. Anybody ever tells you that there's nothing going on in Washington other than politics, send them a version of this podcast. Thanks to all the guests who have been on the air with us for last year, and here's looking forward to years to come, sharing with all of you what's working in Washington. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. Our online writer is Barbara Ulrich. Music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room and The Sunbathers. And a huge thank you to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please rate the podcast. And let us know who you think we should be talking to on this show. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.